Rupert again and ask you that question. So, Dr. Bland, why should the listeners tune into our episode today? I'm going to discuss in this episode the effect that our diet and our lifestyle have specifically on our immune system through our gut microbiome that influences brain outlook, reduces depression, improves sleep, improves memory, and gets over that feeling of worry. It's all in this podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. Uh, before we get going on the episode today, I just want to let you guys know a little about neurofeedback. Um, neurofeedback is a tool um, that we use based on uh, people's brain map recordings to modulate the electrophysiology and actually upregulate or downregulate certain frequencies um, that may be uh, causing problems. We can improve sleep mood, uh, decreased stress, and a host of other benefits um, when neurofeedback is applied properly. So if you guys want to find out more about the neurofeedback that we're doing at NeuroFlex or any of the other uh, neuromodulation modalities, I'd recommend you go ahead and check out neuroflex.com, or you can also shoot me an email. Love to talk with you guys. Um, shoot me an email, toby at neuroflex.com. On to today's episode, um, we have a very special guest, a guy I have been keeping up with for a while um, and, and just a huge pioneer in, in the functional medicine space. That is Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who is the founder and president um, of Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, along with the president of Big Bold Health. And Dr. Bland is a personable and highly respected thought leader who spent more than four decades focused on the improvement of human health. He is known worldwide as the founder of the functional medicine movement, which represents his vision for a care model that is grounded in systems biology and informed by research that he has a unique ability to synthesize. His pioneering work has created the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, as well as the Institute for Functional Medicine, the global leader in functional med medicine education. And since 1991, Hundreds of thousands of healthcare practitioners have participated in these programs, and this collective knowledge has positively impacted the lives of patients all over the world. So, Dr. Bland, it's it's truly an honor to have you on the show with us today. Well, Toby, it's truly an honor to be uh, one of your your guests. <laughs> we uh, we've got a lot of uh, commonality between the two of us. I started off in my uh, PhD work at the University of Oregon in in neurosciences, and ended up at the uh, Oregon Health Sciences and Med School in Portland, really focusing on aspects of neurobiochemistry. So I think uh, we got a lot of jazz that we can play together here. Definitely, definitely. And go Ducks. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I functional medicine is something that nowadays I feel like, I mean, you know, uh, is, is just like so popularized and everyone's talking about it. Um, well, maybe not, not everyone, maybe there's still some growth that it has uh, to do, but, but kind of being someone who, who was kind of there from the very beginning of, of just bringing functional medicine, um, you know, to, to the health stratosphere, like what, what can you tell me about say back in, uh, is it 90, 91 that I, I mentioned in your intro, um, that you've been doing this since like, what, what happened, what was kind of the landscape like of, of natural medicine kind of back in those early days and what what's the progression that you've kind of seen as as we've moved along the decades that's really a great question and you know, first i want to compliment uh, you and the title of your podcast i think neuroflex is right in the middle of the bullseye because 
the terminology and what you've been talking about is flexibility of the nervous system to respond to a changing environment. And uh, it's beyond that of just diagnosing a disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, some, you know, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or uh, some kind of a uh, pre-dementia uh, condition. And it's really looking at the, the brain's ability to, to both heal and be flexible and to modulate its function based upon signals that it gets from the, uh, from the environment, from our lifestyle. And so I think you're right on the, on the tip of the spear. And I want to compliment you as to what you're advocating. Uh, that has been really the, the focus of my work, um, I, I guess now really for 40 plus years, is that I started to recognize uh, through my training, both in, in my PhD program and in medical school, and eventually became a medical school professor. That was my first real job after going through school. Uh, that these things that we call diseases came from somewhere. <laughs> they didn't just appear as a bump in the night on a Monday morning when we wake up with a certain diagnosis. And so the, the question that always really intrigued me, and it's, I guess it's been my life pursuit. Uh, my mother would say that uh, this is questions I would ask even back when I was a, a child. Um, and that is, where do these things come from? They, they don't just emerge. Uh, uh, and they're not associated with necessarily infection. So they're not a communicable disease that we might think of in terms of uh, an infectious illness, but yet they constitute uh, more than 70% of all the conditions that people die prematurely of are related to these non-infectious, so-called so non-communicable diseases that have some other source of their origin other than an infection with a virus or a bacteria or something of that nature. So that led me really to be sucked into that question very, very deeply. And I had a sabbatical two-year experience that was my life changer in 81 to 83, in that I was asked uh, by two-time Nobel Prize winning laureate, Dr. Linus Pauling, uh, to come join him down at his institutes in, in uh, Stanford and Palo Alto, uh, California, to uh, run a research lab uh, for a couple of years, uh, looking at nutritional relationships to, to function, basically, to venomolic function. And what I came to recognize is Dr. Pauling and his wife, Eva Helen, were really standing for more than just uh, the, some 800 publications in science that he had uh, published uh, and, and authored, but we're really talking to a whole different paradigm shifting concept around health and around medicine. And, and that was that if you get the structure right, the function will follow. And so the question is in, in, uh, in terms of organizing our thoughts about medicine, just as we would organize our thoughts about um, social systems, if we can find the right structure, then we can uh, hope to get a improved functional outcome. So that then set, kind of infected my nervous system with a virus that I couldn't get rid of, uh, saying, how do we understand better um, function? And function, I, I uh, ultimately recognize uh, for at least me, falls into four buckets, four categories. And that was a physical function, uh, metabolic function or physiological function, um, cognitive function, which you spend quite a bit of time in your program talking about, uh, and then behavioral function. And when you roll those four different kinds of function together, you get the function of the whole organism, the function of us. How do we behave? Now, with that in mind, then I said, if we could better define and quantify function and really understand it and define it in the individual, could we then help them to improve their function and, and in so doing, uh, manage their health upstream to that of downstream treatment of a disease? because the way medicine works right now is it's downstream medicine. It, uh, you go in, you get a diagnosis, 
you get a code called an international classification of disease code, so-called ICD code. That then reimburses the physician for services. Then you get a prescription and you treat the symptoms of that disease based upon usual and customary uh, conventions within medicine. Now that system I think works really well uh, in crisis disease conditions where that person is in pretty serious illness and they need to really get a rescue, but it's not so good with people that are walking wounded and chronically ill and have complex symptomatologies and are everything from uh, having depression to low-grade digestive problems to joint pain to <clears throat> headaches to uh, skin problems that are kind of chronic. All those kind of chronic conditions, which are the, the dominant kind of problems we have with health, don't fall tidally into those disease diagnostic uh, determinants. So what do you do? You have to go upstream to understand why they're functioning less optimally. And so that then leads us to you know, ask the question, well, how do you measure function? We, we have these things to measure disease. Those are the diagnostic tests that we often have when we go see the doctor. But how do you measure function? So that then led me into a whole new range of, um, of thinking about how you codify function, how you quantify it, how you help personalize that approach to the patient. So you're treating the, the cause and not the effect. You're moving up to actually the origin of their dysfunction not just treating the symptoms of the pain or the headache or the whatever it might be with a with a, a drug that uncouples the pain, uh, the discomfort, but doesn't really treat the cause. So that was the origin of uh, of functional medicine in 1990, and you know it, it's kind of grown up now, as you said, to have several hundred thousand people around the world practitioners that are uh, educated in this concept and are starting to apply it in their practices. And there's a there's another connection that we share that uh, that I just realized when you mentioned uh, going to Palo Alto with uh, to work with Linus Pauling. That's actually I was born at Stanford Hospital in Palo Alto. Oh so word. yeah, wow. yeah, a lot of a lot of intersections there. Um, I wanted to ask you. So you know, when it comes to sort of like the pillars of you know cognitive health, brain health. Um, what do you see as as some of like the the foundational elements, and also some of the things that are, you know, at the root cause of, you know, whatever, you know, people's headaches, depression, anxiety, all of the really common um, kind of chronic conditions that you had just mentioned. Um, like, what do you, what do you see as sort of the root causes of a lot of those? Well, thank you. That, that has actually been probably the major focus of my work. Uh, I, I've been very privileged over the decades that I've been able to assemble a remarkable group of individuals uh, to kind of be engaged in that exploration with me. I've run large clinical research centers. We've published uh, hundreds of papers. We've uh, uh, kind of developed new strategies, new techniques that are now being used by doctors around the world that uh, really are addressing that very question. And for me, where I had, where the tire met the road for me in my learning uh, was probably in a place that I would have not expected, um, but it was a life-changing experience. And that was... Uh, I was invited to attend a meeting, uh, it was in Philadelphia, this would have been now nearly 30 years ago. And the speaker that was on the program right before me was a gentleman by the name of Glenn Doman. And, and uh, Glenn Doman was the head of an organization in Philadelphia called the Institute for the Human Achievement of Human Potential. And what they worked with were brain injured children and their parents. And they had they had inter interfaced with more than a half a million families of brain injured children. And uh, 
when I'm talking about brain injury, I'm talking about many of these kids that were very, very seriously injured. And uh, many of them would probably be candidates to be institutionalized because their problems were so severe. But uh, Mr. Doman and, and his colleagues uh, uh, that worked fastidiously at the Institute felt, no, that was not how these kids should be approached. They should be approached as, um, to use the NeuroFlex concept, that they have uh, flexibility and resilience that just had to be unearthed in their brain to repair and recover from these brain injuries and that they were reversible brain injuries. Now, I have to admit and do a mea culpa that when I first started engaging as a member of their scientific advisory group, um, I had some apprehension and maybe even some skepticism because I had seen uh, these children that these parents had brought in and they were very seriously uh, injured and uh, uh, kids with uh, what appeared to be irreversible neurological injuries. Kids that I thought would, you know, would never probably speak, uh, certainly not uh, walk and, and, uh, and play normally. Um, so it was very distressing and, and, you know, really heavy on my heart when I, when I saw the kids that these parents were bringing in. But because I was able to have more than 10 years of experience uh, on the advisory board and take many trips back to Philadelphia to the institutes, and this is not an inpatient treatment center. What happens is parents bring their children and then the staff of the institutes teaches the parents then how to become the therapists. So that the, the children go home with the parents with these programs that these extraordinarily dedicated parents then introduce to their kids and work with them hours a day, uh, implementing the pillars that you described, which were specific types of program exercises to repattern their neuromuscular activities, uh, a specific dietary approach and specific learning tools um, that were stepwise under the assumption that their brains could be re-collateralized to move around <laughs> the injured place, not that you're getting rid of the injury, but you're gonna re replace those memories in a, in a healthy part of the brain so they could be fully functioning. And I have to say my biggest uh, joys in life were going to the annual Celebration of Life conference where each year, uh, the institutes would invite the parents and their children to come in and to uh, celebrate the progress that they had been making. Now, I want you to recall that I was there long enough to see kids and in their infancy that were coming in that were so irreversibly injured that I thought, I thought irreversibly injured that I thought they would never have a chance to have normal lives. And 10 years later, these children were performing complex gymnastics they were playing extraordinary music by memory, uh, violins and pianos, and they were also performing Shakespeare in Old English in full costumes uh, from memory and doing it at performance levels. And to say that that didn't bring tears to our my wife and I's eyes every year when we had the privilege of going to that to show the power of the reversibility of these conditions that were considered by many in the in the field of medicine to be functionally irreversible. Uh, gave me the confidence that so many things that we take for granted that can't be fixed can be fixed. So that has been kind of my guiding principle. How do we take these things and exercise and activity, brain training and diet and convert them into therapeutic programs that more people than just those that are seriously brain injured could employ to improve their performance? And that that was kind of the root uh, process that led into the evolution of functional medicine. 
And in terms of talking about one of those pillars with diet, um, how how does diet uh, impact kind of cognitive function, mental health, um, and sort of also in terms of the di- sort of divisions that exist today in terms of people? I mean, I guess people have always been very divided uh, on on diet and you know, some people are carnivore and paleo and vegan. There's all these kind of seemingly competing camps. But <laughs> from your from your knowledge and expertise, what are what are some of the the principles of of eating, you know, a health a brain healthy diet that that everyone you know needs to understand? Well, you know, I think this has been such an exciting uh, process for me to to be a participant in and to observe because. When I started in this field, our knowledge about the specifics of how dietary principles would influence our function was still pretty much in its early stages. Uh, over the last 40 years, however, it's been truly remarkable. It's been revolutionary to see how we now can better understand how certain dietary principles actually influence uh, uh, health and disease-related functions in our body. and. Through that, I, I've come to recognize that there are certain pinch points or certain touch points of where diet has its most significant impact on health. And uh, this, is, this is still a rapidly evolving field, so I don't want to sound like I have all the answers, but I think we're much farther closer to some answers now as to how this can be applied in humans than before. So here are my principles. Number one, no one diet is perfect for everybody. There is no such thing as a perfect diet because we're much more variegated than we originally recognized that we are as roger williams uh, said some 50 years ago we're biochemically unique so biochemical individuality and therefore there are certain principles that are general to all people but if we get to the specifics of what is the right food for a person to eat for their optimal function we have to be recognized and personalization is very important so that's number one number two uh, we recognize that uh, historically, we can learn things from cultures um, like Dan Buettner has talked about in in, uh, the Blue Zones that have lived fairly uh, simple lives without a lot of medicine and live into their hundreds uh, with great health. And we ask, you know, what did they eat? And then what happens when uh, their relatives that have the same genes move to the Western world? Do they maintain the same level of health and vitality? And the answer is no, they don't. And uh, these principles of, of what they ate was they ate uh, uh, products that came out of the ground, uh, mostly plants, uh, with some animal products. Animals were more difficult to raise in these and to maintain. So they had a high plant-based diet. It was a variety of plants with uh, what we call eating the rainbow. So we ate foods of all sorts of different colors because each of those colors has different uh, principles, nutrient principles. We call them phytochemicals, plant-derived uh, nutrients. And they influence the body in very unique ways that we're starting to understand mechanistically. I could go on a rip here and go into some detail, but let's just say they have unique abilities to modulate gene expression and to then control how we look, act, and feel as we grow older. And as we've cut out vegetables from our diet and we've we've um, eat a lot of processed foods, some people unfortunately live in food deserts. They don't even have access to fresh fruit, uh, fruits and vegetables. Then it cuts out these important nutrients that can shape our body's resilience and, and the third uh, thing that I've learned is that uh, the, the first effect that food has on our health occurs through its interface with this uh, community of organisms that lives on our intestinal tract that everybody's talking about now called the microbiome. 
And uh, I'm proud to say that I think we were one of the first groups back in the middle 80s uh, to talk about the microbiome and its impact on our immune system and on our nervous system. And uh, I actually, uh, one of my doctor attendees in a, in a seminar I gave in 1985, I can't even believe to say this, sent me uh, recently a syllabus that I had used that he had collected when he was cleaning up his office. He finally said, hey, here's a syllabus that you used in your seminar in 1985 on the gut microbiome endotoxicity, uh, endotoxicity in, in the brain, and which we were talking about the fact that uh, the immune system of our body is connected to the microbiome of our intestinal tract and how we eat and feed it and how that's connected to our nervous system, our brain. Well, we've come a huge um, long way in better understanding that relationship since 1985. And so one of the things that we really focus on in our functional medicine approach towards uh, mental health, uh, um, depression, headaches, uh, uh, foggy brain, uh, cognitive dis dysfunction, is to look at this interface between the immune system, the food we eat, how it influences the gut microbiome, and how that, that then signals to the brain through these messenger molecules. Because really, as uh, Mike, uh, Michael Gerson uh, in his classic book called The Second Brain talked about, um, the gut is our second brain. The gut has all these communicating capabilities, but with the things that it produces through the microbiome, these uh, hormonal messaging substances that then signal back to the vagus nerve and go directly to our brain. And our brain then signals back to the gut by producing neurotransmitters. And so they're directly interrelated. So if the gut feels disturbed, then the brain feels disturbed. And now we have a term for it. We call it neuroinflammation. And there are many, many people who are suffering from chronic neuroinflammation with the symptoms like uh, poor cognitive um, function, uh, sleep disturbances, chronic headaches, uh, mental confusion, depression. These are all kind of manifestations of imbalance between the diet, microbiome, immune system, and the brain's chemistry. Yeah, and we we know so much now about you know inflammation and its role in various different you know pretty much almost every single sort of disorder disease. It seems like there's a role of of inflammation there nearly, um, but particularly with with like mental health disorders. I know with depression, there were a couple research labs at my university that were measuring or looking at the effect of uh, C-reactive protein levels, uh, a measure, uh, a blood measure of inflammation and its uh, relation to depression, showing that basically the, lo the lower, lower levels of C-reactive protein, the less inflammation in the body, the less depressed people were. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm very uh, proud to say that uh, one of my original research groups uh, was actively involved in some of that early pioneering work, looking at inflammatory markers and in the relationship to uh, to depression and how that connects to the gut microbiome. So um, we've we've linked with uh, some of the major leaders in the field, like uh, Dr. Patrice Connie at uh, Louvain University, uh, Catholic University Louvain in, in Belgium, who is one of the first people to really discover the role the microbiome has on signaling through the immune system to things like insulin resistance and to obesity and to uh, brain cognitive dysfunction. So uh, we've, we've been on this now for oh, the better part of uh, 25 to 30 years. And it's it's really exciting now to see uh, see the development of this becoming more well understood and, and clinically practiced by functional medicine docs. In fact, we developed a kind of an, uh, a mnemonic, a program that uh, I would say thousands and thousands of doctors are now using. It's called the 4R program. I think now it's actually 
been expanded to the 5R program, but it was originally the 4R program. And that was a, a program for gastrointestinal restoration is what we called it, the 4R program. And the R's, the four R's stand for remove, replace, re-inoculate, repair. So the concept was remove the offending substances that are causing um, uh, alteration of your immune system. That could be food antigens, allergens, toxins. Uh, that could be uh, food chemicals. Uh, so that's the remove phase. The uh, replace phase is improved digestive function by breaking the big molecules in our diet down to small things that are less uh, troublesome to our immune system. So that has to do with uh, proper hydrochloric acid by secretion by the stomach. That's proper pancreatic enzyme secretion by our pancreas for digestion of protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Uh, so we have uh, support for that using things like pancreatin and digestive uh, aids that uh, help to improve digestion. Then the third R is uh, re-inoculate. And uh, that is uh, what we now know as pre and probiotics, uh, giving uh, these uh, selective food uh, for friendly bacteria that live in our gut, and then probiotics, the friendly bacteria to re-inoculate with the friendly critters to get rid of the unfriendly critters, the, what we call the parasitic types of bacteria in our colon to reestablish a healthy microbiome. And then the fourth R is repair, and that has to do with giving the nutrients that are necessary for improving the mucosal integrity of our gut lining so it doesn't leak and doesn't uh, allow uh, toxic substances to get into our bloodstream to affect our immune system. Here we talk about zinc, we talk about pentathenic acid, we talk about various phytochemicals, uh, uh, we talk about the amino acid deglutamine, we talk about quercetin, one of the polyphenols and onions and garlic. And so we have a whole program that's actually been implemented successfully in hundreds of thousands of patients, might be by this time millions uh, around the world that are focused on this very thing of the gut-brain immune connection. And what are what are some of the, the top offenders when it comes to, you know, kind of damaging the gut microbiome, whether that's food or antibiotics or whatever else? What, what are some of the things that most are most commonly disrupting that balance? Well, let's start with the, the big one, um, sugar. Uh, uh, we have way too much sweet in the diet. And, you know, it's it's interesting uh, as we move from sugar being mostly cane or beet sugar, which is sucrose, then we transitioned, as you know, into a more economical form of sweetener called fructose, corn syrup sweetener. Um, and so we started getting more and more fructose in our diet. That's even to many extents worse than getting sucrose in our diet from cane and beet sugar. So we get, uh, when I say we, I really should talk about specific individuals within we, uh, get maybe upward of 20% of their calories from sugar uh, or more. Uh, if they're drinking a lot of sweetened beverages, they could get up to 40% of their calories from simple carbohydrate sugars. That just overwhelms our whole signaling system. It completely destroys a, a lot of the integrity of our microbiome. Our, our, our bugs in our gut no longer are friends. They become part of our hostile things that are producing messages to activate our immune system into inflammation. So that's the first thing we really focus on is how much sweet is a person getting in their diet and, and are there ways that we can modulate then the amount of uh, simple sugars in their diet to make their diet still attractive and tasty, but not overwhelming uh, their gut microbiome and their immune system. Uh, the, the second thing, obviously, uh, I've already alluded to it, is uh, uh, people have generally cut out what we consider to be fiber-rich foods, uh, which are vegetables. 
And um, so people are eating a lot of highly processed foods that have had the fiber removed. Fiber, by the way, is only found in, in vegetable products. You don't find fiber in animal products. So if a person doesn't have animal uh, vegetable products in their diet or they have highly processed white flour, white sugar, white fat type products, they're not getting fiber. And fiber is an essential food for the friendly bacteria that live in our gut, the so-called prebiotic fibers. And, and so the second thing we try to do is let's make sure we can construct a diet that's ad adequately delivering oh, 25 to 30 grams at least a day of uh, a friendly uh, prebiotic fiber. When I say friendly, not coming from a source that might be all allergenic, because we know that there are many people who are, are sensitive to uh, gluten that's found in cereal grains. And so we'd be cautious about the source of the fiber. We try to stay away from grain-based fiber and stay more with uh, plant-based fibers that are non-grain-based. That's one of the things that led us into the discovery of this ancient food that's been consumed by humans for 2,500 years. It's found in the blue zones of people living long uh, up in the, um, uh, the, the foothills and actually into the, the uh, Himalayan mountains. And it's called Himalayan tartary buckwheat. This was one of my, my discoveries that I, I just was led to through a whole series of coincidental uh, conversations as I travel around the world. Turns out that Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which I mentioned has been consumed for 2,500 years as a food, uh, has very, very high levels of these prebiotic fibers. It has very high levels of vitamins and minerals. It has a very low glycemic response, meaning it doesn't adversely affect blood sugar. And it is the highest food that I can find in the world that is rich in immune strengthening phytochemicals, things like quercetin, luteolin, hesperidin, uh, uh, diosmin, a whole portfolio of these um, uh, immune strengthening compounds in those in the, in the foods. In fact, there are over 50 of them that are in this orchestra that's provided by eating Himalayan tartary buckwheat. So we started exploring the effect it has on the immune system, the effect it has on the microbiome, Turns out that this has now become a fairly uh, significant body of research and investigators around the world. There are, I think this last year, over 100 papers published in the, in the medical literature on the role of Himalayan tartary buckwheat in strengthening the immune system, strengthening the microbiome, lowering inflammation, improving blood sugar uh, control. And what we found when we went to the United States is um, there weren't any farms that were any longer growing it, even though it was a colonial food in our past. Um, there were, we can only find one farm that had a small, it was a hobby farm actually of a former Cornell University ag professor and his nurse wife that were growing this just to, for fun um, in upstate New York. And so we, about three years ago, decided we need to start bringing this back into the, into the United States. So we uh, commissioned a, a, a variety of organic farmers. We have a cooperative, a Himalayan tartary buckwheat uh, farming cooperative now, uh, where we brought it back into America. We've produce the first organically certified Himalayan tartary buckwheat. We have research, we have ag research, and we just are finishing a clinical human trial that's registered with the government for a clinical intervention trial, looking at the effect of it on uh, immunity and uh, functional health in humans. And it's amazing uh, how we learn old things in new ways and start to see the power that these uh, nutrient-rich foods that modulate the microbiome and modulate our immune system and lower inflammation can have on, on health, things like depression, like mood, like sleep cycling, uh, these, these uh, feeling states that people have that are associated with chronic illness uh, can go away when we start providing the right fuel to our, to our body. So we're um, on our website, which is bigboldhealth.com. 
we describe all sorts of these studies and the work that we're doing to kind of bring this uh, this ancient product back into the United States to make it available for people. Awesome stuff. Um, yeah, that's that's one that uh, prior to this interview, I had not personally heard about, um, despite trying to keep up to date as much as I can on on health stuff. So that that's definitely one I, I'm going to need to read up more about. Well, um, we're, 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 we'll send you a, a care box with our uh, our organic Himalayan tartary buckwheat uh, flour and products. And I think you know, we have a whole food lab that does recipe development and and we'll send you the stuff and see what you think. It's it's that would uh, be awesome. It, it's it's a it's pretty cool. We've we've got a whole uh, we're chefs now that are using it in dairy various restaurants. We're we're really bringing it back. It's it's a great uh, crop to grow because it doesn't require fertilizer, pesticides, or herbicides. It doesn't require ir irrigation. It can grow in in fairly poor soils. It actually has an ability to detoxify aluminum in the soil. Uh, and, and the reason that it's done so well in the Himalayas is over the years of its uh, evolution, it had to survive in one of the most hostile environments uh, with frost and hot temperatures and limited water and so forth. So its genes uh, were selected for uh, immune vigilance and immune strength. And now when we eat that food, ironically, or, or I, I, maybe it's not ironically, maybe interestingly, it transmits that immune potential over to us when we are eating the food. So it's a, it's a really great story. And we are now studying soil mycorrhiza and soil health because it also communicates with the soil to improve soil uh, composition and the living community in the soil. So it, it's a whole system of thinking of immunity from a, a kind of a planetary level, healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people in, in the outcome. And one of the, the things I hear a lot about uh, soil is is your sort of the mineral uh, nutrient depletion um, of the soil nowadays, and and that often being like a reason that people say you know you still need to like supplement with certain things even though you might be eating a really clean healthy diet. What are what are so like what what's your approach to supplementation um, outside of what what people are just eating in the diet? Well, I think you're you're exactly right. Um that you know as we have used uh, ag tech and and uh, to grow foods with a lot of agricultural chemicals the so-called green revolution the norman borlaug concept of high pesticide high fertilizer applications to maximize yield uh, what it is uh, done and i think this is well now respected is it, it sterilizes the soil it's it's a little bit like giving antibiotics to the soil and so the rich community of organisms that live within our soil that communicate with the plant roots that actually then create the outcome called the nutrients in the final product uh, have been seriously uh, influenced. And so one of the things that I think we all recognize is that um, planetary health uh, it starts with uh, health of the soil. And it starts with health of our oceans because we also eat a lot of stuff out of our oceans. So going back and think of things more in a broad-based systems way gets us to uh, recognize it. Let's go to agriculture, that if we repopulate um, the soil with friendly bacteria, fungi, the things that live together, all the living critters, uh, so-called mycorrhiza of the soil, uh, it has its own microbiome. Just like our intestines has a microbiome, the soil has a microbiome. So a healthy microbiome of the soil, what does it do? It draws up minerals in from the substrata of the soil that's below the, the topsoil. And now it re-neutrifies that soil. It regenerates that soil. That's the whole movement of regenerative agriculture that we're supporting. Uh, 
that regenerative soil then supports the uh, plants that grow in it to have optimal function of their capability of producing healthy outcome in whatever we harvest, the seeds or the fruit or the product that we're going to eat. And so it then has a different nutrient uh, content. And in fact, we just finished a, a really interesting uh, a study. We, our plant scientist, Dr. Dr. Emily Reese, that works for us, uh, uh, has done these field trials on different uh, inoculants that we put in the soil to see if it has an effect upon the level of phytochemicals that are in our Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And sure enough, if you inoculate the soil with friendly bacteria and fungi to increase the mycorrhiza uh, integrity of the soil, make the soil healthier, we've shown uh, through her work that it actually in increases the level of these immune strengthening um, nutrients in the Himalayan tartary buckwheat itself. By the way, just to say it aside, I don't know how the name buckwheat ever was put to this. It's not a wheat. It has no relationship to wheat at all genia, uh, from its genes. Uh, it is actually a fruit seed. It's not even a grain. And it has no gluten, obviously, because it's not a grain. So uh, I, I think it, the term, the name is, is a little bit misleading because it's actually not a wheat-derived or related product at all. So by nourishing the soil, you nourish the seed of the a growing plant, which then produces the ability for it to have a higher immune strengthening phytochemical content. Awesome. Okay. And and now I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, in terms of like omega-3s and fish oil, I know you guys recently came out with like a new formulation for, for skin and eye health, um, incorporating astaxanthin. Um, can you talk a little about the role of, of fish oil uh, and EPAs, DHAs, just in the context of, of human health and maybe particularly with uh, as it relates to, to the brain, because I know there's lots of lots of connections there. Yeah, thank you. This this has been for me. Um, well, I guess now it would be, oh, gee, it's, it's nearly a 40 year area of interest because I was introduced uh, in the early 1980s. I went to a conference in England uh, of the. Um, United Kingdom uh, Nutrition Society. And uh, there were two presenters at that, that meeting. This would have been about 1983 when I was uh, doing my sabbatical work at Pauling Institute. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, Bjorn Dyerberg and Dr. Uh, Bang. And uh, Bang and Dyerberg were, because they were Danish, but they were uh, uh, medical doctor PhDs, uh, were uh, then sent over from Denmark to its protectorate, which is Greenland, to study the health of the uh, Greenland uh, native population, the indigenous population. And they came back and said, you know, it's very amazing that this group of individuals consume over 70% of their calories as fat, which at the time it was felt in the, in the early 80s that fat was going to cause heart disease. No matter, you know, it was it was the cause of heart disease was e eating fat in the diet. And um, so they said these people that eat 70% or more of their calories as, as whale blubber and seal fat and fish fat um, don't have heart disease. And But yet when those people move uh, from Greenland to eastern, northeastern Canada and eat the Canadian diet, suddenly they're getting heart disease at the same rate as their Canadian fellow citizens. So what the heck is going on? So they started studying this and they were able to be the first people to determine that the fat that these marine organisms they were eating 
was an entirely different kind of fat than we were commonly eating in our diets at the time. And they were uh, what were called omega-3 fats. And omega-3 fats had names that we're you know, kind of familiar with now, EPA and DHA, docosahexaenoic do acid, nicosa, uh, and tendoenoic acid. And uh, so EPA and DHA were very high in their diets. And they then, that started a whole revolution of other investigators starting to say, wow, uh, we've never studied these omega-3 fats and their effect on human health. The more that they were studied, the more we found out how important they were. And they became kind of now recognized as being essential, just like a vitamin would be essential. These are essential. And they're very important, as you indicated, in brain development and in neurological function, particularly in, in young infants and in the developing brain, particularly DHA, docosahexaenoic acid. So this, this field really exploded uh, from the early investigations and discoveries of Bang and Dyerberg into becoming uh, what I call the fish oil revolution. Now, unfortunately, to some extent, uh, what's happened over the decades since these discoveries were made is that um, members of the, of the field of nutrition products started to say, well, okay, then let's start really concentrating the oils that are found in these uh, natural products to make them really potent. So we'll say it's a horsepower race. The people that have the most in their product are going to win the race. Well, it turns out in order to concentrate the oils in these natural foods into a very concentrated form, you have to chemically uh, go through a whole series of processes to get them to be highly concentrated. And uh, Dr. Dyerberg uh, more recently did studies on these concentrated forms. So these are called ester forms versus the uh, original natural forms that are called triglyceride forms. And it was found that the ester forms really don't have the same positive benefit. Uh, they still have some benefits, so I don't want to say no benefit, but they're, they're not as active as the natural forms. So minimum processing uh, produces a more beneficial effect, uh, even though the horsepower race might say, if you had a higher percentage of these in your delivery, you were going to get a better effect. That's not necessarily true. Now, that led us, as a consequence of a whole series of <laughs> unexpected um, uh, coincidences, to be up in, in Alaska. Uh, boating is our hobby. Uh, we live in Seattle, uh, the gateway to Alaska. We've, My wife and I have done over 35,000 miles of boating in Alaska together on our small boat. And so we meet all sorts of interesting people up there that are in the fishing industry. Uh, and that led us into recognize that Alaska is the only place in the world still that, that does not allow any fish farming. Uh, they still uh, preserve the natural integrity of sustainability of fish up there. And so we, we started asking the question, is there a difference between the fish oil that's derived from minimally processed Alaskan fish, salmon, and cod versus that which are coming out of the North Sea and Brazil and Peru, the anchovies that are often found in sardines and in fish oil supplements that are used today. And we found that, lo and behold, they were different. They, uh, they had natural astaxanthin and, and uh, these uh, important uh, uh, nutrients to protect against oxidative injury. They have some vitamin A and D in them, which are important for immune uh, strengthening capability. And they have an unusual thing that has only recently been discovered uh, as part of the omega-3 family, only in minimally processed oils that are called pro-resolving mediators that are abbreviated PRMs. These pro-resolving mediators are uh, compounds that are present in these minimally processed fish oils that have the unique ability, about 100 times more active than EPA and DHA, in quenching 
the inflammation process. So they're not anti-inflammatories as such. They are regulators of stopping the inflammatory process. And we know that inflammation is not necessarily bad. We need inflammation in our bodies for immune defense and recycling damaged cells that have been injured. But we don't want it to go on indefinitely. That becomes chronic inflammation. So it turns out that these PRMs, these pro-resolving mediators by the name implying, they resolve this inflammation and kind of terminate the inflammation process. And as I said, there's about 100 times higher activity of PRMs um, than there is of the uh, EPA and DHA. So the oils that we found up in Alaska from our research were very high in PRMs when they were minimally processed. And so we, uh, we got so excited about this that we actually um, developed the first pharmaceutical grade uh, plant in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, out in the Aleutian Islands. Uh, we got a grant from the state of Alaska to hire young uh, women and men to train them to be chem tech uh, people to work in our facility there that are native Alaskans. Uh, we, we built a living facility and, and a health service for them. And we're now producing, I think, uh, the only high PRM natural oil from sustainable Alaska fish as a omega-3 supplement. So that's part of our immune rejuvenation program is this, this concept of let's use Himalayan tartary buckwheat along with these these uh, omega-3 oils with PRMs as part of an immune active uh, treatment approach. Got it. And okay, so we, we've talked about some some kind of like recent developments or advances um, that have been made. Like what what other things when you look at functional medicine and just what we know, what we've learned even in the past few years about uh, proper nutrition and the gut and um, brain performance, what are any, any other uh, compounds or things that you have particularly been interested in? Yes, I think that the other thing most people are familiar with now because it's gotten so much um, attention over the last few years are probiotics, these uh, supplements of uh, bacteria that help to improve our microbiome and therefore our immune function and our ultimately brain chemistry. Uh, when we started thinking about probiotics, it was really derived from some very early work. This would take us back to the turn of the last century, the 18th going into the 19th century, into the 20th century. And this would be um, a work of Ily Mechnikov. Uh, Ily Mechnikov was the person who took over directorship of the Pasteur Institute at the turn of the 19th uh, going into the 20th century. And he was very famous at the time. He had actually won a Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology for his discovery of the innate immune system. And that's a whole story unto itself that I won't bore people with, but it was fascinating that he was able to uh, determine how the innate immune system, this ancient immune system, was the first level of defense against infection and disease. And uh, so he was considered like... Uh, the world's greatest immunologist probably of his time. Well, he was also very, very interested in how the immune system was connected to our gut microbiome. And it turns out that now we know over 70% of our immune system is clustered around our intestinal tract because that immune system has to determine from what we eat, what is friend and what is foe. So it's, it's clustered there to protect us against stuff that we're eating that might be damaging. Um, and so the immune system is, uh, is getting uh, its information through the microbiome, through what we eat. And so the, uh, the work of Metchnikoff, he said, well, you know, if we want to make people healthy, now, again, I want to emphasize this is 1902 when he was saying this, 
we need them to improve the intestinal microbiome. They didn't call it the microbiome in back those days. That's a new terminology, but uh, the gut function. And the way we do that is we intervene by giving them a enema that contains yogurt, uh, Lactobacillus bulgaricus. Um, and so this book that he wrote was called The Prolongation of Life. This is 1902. And in it, he describes case histories and this approach towards renutrifying a person's intestinal tract by administering probiotic organisms through enemas. Well, that's not the, the route that most people probably would like, but it, it was the early start of this whole new uh, concept that has evolved now from 1902 to where we are in 2022 to a much more sophisticated understanding that we can, first of all, administrate the, these organ organisms orally. We don't have to rely upon uh, enemas to get them into our intestinal tract. But more interestingly, and I think this is probably the big aha recently, is that there are literally thousands, probably tens of thousands, but I'll just say thousands, of individual unique microorganisms that live in our microbiome uh, and inhabit, it, inhabit our body. People don't recognize it, but we have about two to three pounds of living organisms in our intestinal tract, and there are more DNA in those microorganisms than there are DNA in, in the living cells of our body. So this is a very active part of our body's machinery is the presence of those microorganisms. Now here's the, the aha about probiotics. We're now learning that there is such thing as species specificity, that certain probiotics will have certain effects upon our immune system, certain effects upon our health. Some are more related to anti-inflammation. Some are more related to the regulation of, of cell um, uh, replication. Some uh, probiotic organisms are more related to neurotransmission and brain function. Uh, and so what we start recognizing is that uh, these probiotic organisms, when they're the right species, the right strain, can have very targeted effects upon our health. So it's not just like taking any garden variety probiotics. It's taking the right probiotic for the right activity. We started to study a variety of different strains and, and look specifically at how they affect the immune system um, one, one strain that we've been really uh, very attentive to because it has a lot of published human data on it is uh, a strain called uh, Lactobacillus rhamnosus, uh, uh, strain 1505. That particular strain, uh, which has been studied in children, actually reduces the number of days absenteeism when given in a school lunch program. Uh, it was used in, our, in, um, in Argentina in a school lunch program in literally tens of thousands of children. It was shown to uh, improve their immune system so they had less infection to colds and they had less absenteeism uh, in school. So we're starting to recognize that it's not just any old garden variety probiotic, but it's specific probiotics for specific activity. So it's another way of lasering in uh, to individualize and personalize therapy. And that, that's, that's, again, part of our Big Bold Health advocacy is, is treating each person with what they need to get the, uh, uh, the optimal uh, beneficial outcome. Right, right. And, you know, when it comes to, I, I think, specific strains of probiotics, I've seen recent research in the past couple of years showing, um, I think, in, in mice giving like a, a particular strain, I, I'm not recalling what it was, um, but it actually improved like anxiety behavior within the mice, um, which if that translated to humans, that's that's pretty powerful. Um, what what other, you know, uh, you, you mentioned so the lactobacillus uh, rhamnosus. What are uh, some of the other key 
probiotic strains that um, that come into play, you know, if we're specifically talking about, you know, kind of building the best, best brain possible, um, are there any other uh, strains that are that people should look for in, in their probiotic supplements? Well, there's another one that's kind of the uh, the darling right now that's that's uh, advancing very rapidly in its knowledge that um, for for many people probably is a long tongue twisting name. It it's called Acromancia mucinophila, or A mucinophilia abbreviation. Um, this was discovered actually by uh, an investigator uh, that I mentioned earlier, Patrice Connie, who's uh, some now twenty plus years ago. He his group. Uh, with his collaborator Nathalie Delzen uh, in Belgium, discovered this unique organism that has the influence on the mucus lining of our gut, which turns out to be very important. Um, part of the protection uh, of our intestinal tract against leakiness um, is this uh, protective mucus layer that has to be of the right composition and the right thickness. It, it can't be too much, too little. It has to be the right form. And this particular strain of uh, organisms, this emancia, uh, are organisms that are specific to the integrity of the gastrointestinal mucus lining. And it turns out that that organism, because of the role that it's playing uh, in the gut immune system, uh, pos possibly impacts things like blood sugar levels. It possibly impacts infl inflammation. It reduces uh, systemic inflammation. It helps even in weight loss uh, because we now recognize a friendly gut microbiome also has to do with how our calories are deposited in the fat. So uh, we're starting to really witness certain kinds of new organisms that are rising up to be more um, interesting in terms of specific uh, probiotic strains. Uh, and I think we should all keep attention. Our, our Big World Health uh, website, we're, we're trying to keep up on this through the, the latest information as we learn it through our research and a collaboration with other investigators. So I would urge people to, to, to keep up, keep us on their radar screen. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, Dr. Bland, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today. We are coming up on to the end of the episode, but anything that you feel like we've omitted um, that, that you'd really like to uh, give voice to in terms of anything related to <laughs> functional medicine, diet, nutrition, um, anything that we've, uh, that we haven't talked about yet that you feel is, is super important for people to learn. Well, Toby, I think one thing we didn't touch on that I just want to close with is um, you know, a person might ask, well, how do I understand my own unique immune personality? We call it immunotype. And uh, we've been spending quite a bit of time with our medical group in trying to define how one could, at least at first level, understand their unique immu uh, immune type. Because if you can personalize approach to your, your immune type, you're going to be more successful in getting a, a good, a positive outcome. So we've developed uh, the first landing uh, spot is a, is a questionnaire we put together uh, called the Immuno Identity Questionnaire. And it can be found on our website. And it'll allow a person through fairly simple questionnaire to kind of at broad brush understand whether they're one of different five immunotypes. From, from that then, we provide some guidance information about saying, if you're this type, you might want to consider these things because this, these might be unique to your needs. So that would be a, a way that we're trying to move from the general uh, concepts uh, to a more specific uh, personalized uh, approach towards an individual improving their immune function. Awesome. Perfect. Well, uh, Dr. Bland, if, if people want to find out uh, more about your work um, or just any of the, uh, the programs uh, that you're involved with, where would you best direct them to go? 
Well, either our, our website, uh, www.bigboldhealth.com, or they can also go to my website. We, we have all sorts of videos and downloaded material. Um, and that's Jeffrey Bland, G-E-F-F-R-E-Y Bland, B-L-A-N-D.com. So either one or both of those can be very helpful. Perfect. We'll, we'll include links to those in the show notes. And for the audience who enjoyed the show today, um, go ahead, like, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever audio platform you listen to it on. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and uh, most of the other major streaming platforms. You can also go ahead and check out on our YouTube channel, NeuroFlex. You can see the full podcast episodes, the video included, along with podcast clips on that channel. And if you enjoyed the show today, um, go ahead and leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, Dr. Bland, I wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on the show today, um, sharing your, your wealth of, of knowledge and expertise, and just wanted to commend you on just the pioneering work that, that you've been doing you know, now for, for the past few decades in, in the functional medicine space and, and really bringing such a hugely important you know, branch of, of medicine really now into, uh, you know, in, into kind of the mainstream. So I think it's, it's so important and you've clearly helped so many people and continue to help so many people, whether directly or indirectly other functional medicine doctors who are now incorporating some of the stuff that you got started with. So I just wanted to, to, you know, really give you, give you the credit there, um, that, that certainly is due. Thank you, Toby. And I want to shout out to you. I think what you're doing in spreading this information and giving people what I call the science of hope, which is to really give them things they can do that really are going to make a difference in their performance, in their function, in their health. It's, it's really important work. So thanks for allowing me to share some ideas with your group.